Psalm 115, hear now the word of God from the 115th Psalm. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, Where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatsoever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we look at the 115th Psalm, excuse me, in which the psalmist humbly honors God and exhorts God's people humbly to trust him. So the psalmist humbly honors God and exhorts God's people humbly to trust him. Now, as you are probably aware, the 115th Psalm is part of what is called the Egyptian Hallel. You hear that word Hallel, like hallelujah, praise. And so it's part of what is called the Egyptian Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118. And these songs, these Psalms, 113 and 118, would have been sung during the Passover meal, which of course had to do with what? the journey out of Egypt, coming out of Egypt, the exodus, the Egyptian praise, the Egyptian Hillel. 113 and 114, as far as we can know, would have been sung during the meal, and then 115 through 118 after the meal. 
And it is this to which the scripture is referring in Matthew 26, uh, verse 30, and Mark 14, verse 26, in which it says, after the supper, they sang a hymn, and at the last supper, they sang a hymn and went out into the night. And it is this section, then, of scripture that was being sung. Now, Psalm 115 is a very rich psalm. There's a lot here. So there are a lot of riches here in this psalm. First of all, we see there is a spicy skewering of the false gods. You know what a skewer is? Like you put a, you, you uh, have uh, like a needle, like a, uh, uh, a pointy thing to, to skewer meat or whatever. And that's what we have here in terms of the false gods. And so it is, it is mocking, it is making fun of the gods of this world. We also have here a call to humility, and that's sort of the overarching theme as we look at this, a call to humility. We see in this psalm God's power to save and to enrich and we even have an appeal to the cultural mandate. Remember how God said in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth? The kind of thing we learned about at Covenant College and, and other places in terms of the cultural mandate, the creation mandate, and we will see that there is and appeal to that as well. So, the psalm breaks nicely into two parts. First of all, verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 uh, through 8 in terms of honoring God. Honoring God. And then verses 9 through 18, trusting God. Trusting God. And in both places with this theme, this atmosphere, if you will, of humility. So first of all then, verses 1 through 8, honoring God, we see in verses 1 and 2 the pleas for God to vindicate his honor. The pleas for God to vindicate his honor. And in verse 1 then, notice the self-abasement, the abasement going down low, okay? So we abase ourselves. We don't puff ourselves up. If we abase ourselves, we go low. Even as Jesus, or even as John the Baptist said, he, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that's what you have here. The concern is only for God's glory. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. As John Calvin put it, quote, they openly disclaim all merit and all hope of obtaining deliverance otherwise than God's doing it for, from a sole regard to his own glory. For these things are inseparably connected. In other words, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about belonging to God and he to us, it is for our good 
but at the same time, like two sides of a coin, at the same time, it is fundamentally for the glory of God. And of course, you know, scripture everywhere condemns pride. There's not one scripture that says, yes, uh, be sure to be proud. You know, be sure to be boastful about who you are. As a matter of fact, isn't this why uh, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.14 says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In uh, Romans uh, chapter 3 and verse 4, starting in verse 3, but what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not, or God forbid, indeed. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Well, showing the, the, the idea of our not being proud about ourselves. As a matter of fact, in verses 10 through 18, Paul will go on to say, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction or misery and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And again, as we think of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul reminds us, verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things which are mighty and the insignificant or lowly or base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Quotation from Jeremiah 9. And so first of all, we need to remember that we are nothing. That we are nothing. We have nothing to offer God in and of ourselves but especially in comparison to God and his majesty, man is nothing, indeed less than nothing. I'm reminded of the Shakespeare play, Henry V. Remember uh, in that play, uh, I've, made a, I've made reference in a sermon before about this where Henry V gives that magnificent speech, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Well, after that battle of Agincourt, 600 years ago, after that battle in which 10,000 Frenchmen were killed versus only 29 Englishmen, now that's a wipeout. 
What in the Shakespeare play does Henry V say? And be it death proclaim it through our host, our army, to boast of this or take that praise from God which is his only. And one of his soldiers said, is it not lawful and please your majesty to tell how many is killed? I, captain, he responded, but with this acknowledgement that God fought for us. And so as the people, as the news was going to be spread throughout the town of this victory, Henry V said that he won it sung in the Latin, non nobis domine. Non, not, nobis, to us, domine, O Lord. Quoting Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. And so as the news was spread about this fantastic victory, this overwhelming victory, almost miraculous victory, Henry V said, Non nobis domine. Let that be sung so that God gets the glory. And so that's how this psalm begins. Let God get the glory. Let him increase. Let us decrease. But to thy name give glory. And notice why. Because of thy mercy. Because of thy truth. You see the children of Israel here. Find reason to hope. Because of God's glory. Because of his loving kindness. His mercy. And because of his truth. And my friends we should plead this as well. For God is jealous and for his own glory, and he will honor this prayer. He will honor this prayer, but to thy name give glory. God will answer and honor that prayer, for he is jealous for his own glory to be proclaimed. And we should pray then this way, when people doubt God's faithfulness and the truth of the gospel. God's faithfulness is unchanging. God's truth is eternal truth. And as that message is proclaimed, God does get the glory. He does. But now we come to verse 2 in terms of these pleas for God to vindicate his honor. Now we come to a contrast. We have this taunting question. Now, my friends, God's enemies throw such taunts at us as we find here. Why should the Gentiles, why should the heathen, why should the nation say, so where is their God? That's what the world says. And God's enemies do throw such taunts at us. We are in a bitter struggle with unbelief. And part of the sting to these taunts is the fact that we can't always see the why. Isn't that what Job had to deal with? As he was comforted by his so-called three friends, isn't that what Job had to deal with? Why, God, why? Or Psalm 44, 
Psalm 44 starts out talking about how God has been with us. We've won all these victories, and then all of a sudden it changes. But now thou hast rejected us. Thou hast spurned us. And then at the end of the psalm, why? Why? We've not stretched out our hands to to, uh, false gods. We've been faithful. Why? And, of course, there in Psalm 44, you don't really get an answer Accept the acknowledgement that for some mysterious reason that will be fulfilled in Christ, that in point of fact, God has his purposes. Well, so we think today. So we think today. I mean, we look around us. Look at the church today. Is the church strong today? Not hardly. Is the church honored today by the powers that be, by the politicians, by our president and vice president and various senators and congressmen? Not hardly. And so you see then how the taunt can come. So where is their God? That's the taunt. That's the mocking, if you will. Quite possibly, this psalm was written under desperate times and circumstances. But please note that even in these trying kinds of times, or particularly in these trying kinds of times, worship is always appropriate. But you know what's interesting is that even with the taunt, the psalmist immediately rebuffs it because he's saying, wherefore? Should the nation say that? Yes, that is what they say, but why should they say that? And he goes on to turn it back on the nations by contrasting the true and living God with these idols and false gods, verses 3 through 8. Look at verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. My friends, here we see an appeal to the living God. The living God. Here we have the doctrine of God's spirituality, the fact that he is pure spirit, that he has no material being whatsoever. He is in heaven. And furthermore, he does whatever he pleases. You know, the child's catechism, the children's catechism, can you see God? One of the questions, can you see God? No, but he always sees me. And by the way, this idea of the spirituality of God, the true and the living God, the one who actually is alive, the one who is not made out of material things, This idea is contrary to the pagan view. The pagan man or woman takes pride in what he or she can see and pours contempt on what he or she cannot. My friends, God is our God, but our God is in heaven, not in the sense of being something of their own work, their own imagination but in the personal sense. And in that bond of steadfast love and covenant 
faithfulness by which God has bound himself to us. He is our God. It is that God who is in heaven. It is that God who is totally, by being in heaven, is totally sovereign, totally in control. And it is that God, indeed, who has done all his pleasure. But this is in contrast to these dead images, verses 4 through 8. One commentator has put it this way, and I'm sure I'm borrowing from commentators as I go through uh, some of the sermon here today. One commentator puts it, Scripture here is like the child in the story of the emperor's new clothes. Remember that? Remember, the, remember that? The emperor in his new clothes? Who supposedly, oh, and everyone was supposed to say, oh, he has just a wonderful thing, but he was naked, right? He had no clothes on. But everyone was afraid to say that. And so the, there was a child who said, but he has no clothes on. In other words, the child wasn't ashamed, wasn't afraid to tell the truth. Oh, we could really use that in our society today, couldn't we? People who can tell the truth instead of going along and pretending we don't know how many genders there are. But you see, scripture is like the child in the story of the emperor's new clothes, who, as a commentator says, takes a cool stare at what the world doesn't want to admit. Takes a cool stare at what the world doesn't want to admit. And, of course, you find this in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 44. Verse 12, the blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with the plane. In other words, he's making, the craftsmen are making these gods. He marks it out with the compass. He makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of man, that remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, oh, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Pretty foolish, right? Or did you notice from Isaiah 46 that we had read for us here today? Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. In other words, not only do the, do the idols, are they not able to move? You have to move them yourself. And so you have to carry these false gods on your back. In contrast, did you see it went on to say, verse 3, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been 
upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. God is saying, I'm the one who carried you. You don't have to carry me. I'm the one who's carried you. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Well, that's exactly the theme that we have here in Psalm 115. Notice the deadness in a variety of ways in contrast to the living God. Notice the deadness, first of all, of the material. Verse 4a, their idols are silver and gold. Now, silver and gold are wonderful things, but there's no life in them. Can't do you any good. Verse 4b, in terms of their origin. They are, these idols are the work of men's hands. Notice the lifelessness of the idols. They have, verses 5 and following, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Ears they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And notice the deadness with regard to their influence. Verse 8, those who make them are like them. So who is everyone who trusts in them. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. That's what we see in our society today. And that's what it's saying here. Those who make them are like them. But can they do you any good? Of course not. Notice the non-functioning of these idols as well. Mouths, they speak not. They can't communicate with their worshipers. They can't promise or threaten. They can't command or console. They can't explain the past or prophesy the future. They have eyes, but they can't see. They can't tell who their worshipers are. How blind, therefore, are their worshipers. They have ears, but they hear not. They can't hear, nor can prayer. By the way, how can a rational person pray to something which can't even hear him? They have noses, but they smell not. They can't smell the sweet spices offered to them in their false worship. By the way, this, this underscores the idea that an idol has no perception, including no sense perception. They have hands, but they can't handle what's offered to them. They can't grasp the scepter of power, wield the sword of vengeance. They can't perform anything. Even a child's hand is better than that of an idol. They have feet, these, but they can't move. These idols must be lifted into place or they never reach their shrines. They must be fastened or they would fall over. They must be carried or they couldn't move and they can't come to the rescue of their friends. As a matter of fact, not only that, but they can't escape their enemies, the iconoclasm of their enemies, 
who, when the enemies come in from a different nation, a different culture, what do they do? They often smash the idols. Well, they, can these idols do anything? Can they even escape? Can they walk on their dead feet to get away from their enemies? And of course, this is in contrast to verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He doesn't have to escape. He does whatever he pleases. They can't even speak through their throat. They can't even produce the guttural sound of the lowest order of animals, or even what charlatans sometimes would do to try to give them, give these idols speech. So not only are these idols irrational, but they also have no life. There is no, not only no voice, but there is no breath in them. Now, my friends, there are other instances of poking fun at false gods. Uh, we find this uh, in numerous other places, and perhaps none more um, telling than when Elijah, in confronting the 400 uh, priests of Baal, says, why don't you call on your god? Maybe, you know, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's occupied. You know, call a little louder as as these priests were cutting themselves with knives as if to appeal to Baal, to their false god. See, the, the Bible is very clear. The Bible is very clear. We are not to respect false gods. The Lord makes fun of false gods. Mocks false gods, and so do we. Notice then these injunctions against images apply to the true religion as well. We should not attempt to represent God's glory under outward images. In other words, we shouldn't have pictures of Jesus, for example. And so not only should we avoid these false images, or the, the images of the false gods, but we should also respect uh, the uh, spirituality of God as well. Notice verse 8, their makers, as we mentioned, would end up like them, dead, stupid, senseless, and irrational. They that trust in them are like them, this, of course, is a foolish thing to trust in images. So we see then, first of all, the honoring of God. The honoring of God. The psalmist humbly honors God. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. Non nobis domine. But now we come to verses 9 through 8, trusting God. And notice God's power to save and to enrich. Verses 9 through 15. In terms of his power to save, verses 9 through 11, note the total reliance upon God. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Here we have a simple reliance on God's support, his help, and also his protection, his shield. This is to mark then every one of God's people, 
every one of us. We need to have that trust, that reliance upon God, not some sort of formal profession merely, but rather this genuine trust in God. Notice it says here also, not only, O Israel, trust in the Lord, verse 10, O house of Aaron, of course we know the house of Aaron in terms of the priestly class. Verse 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. There's a question when it refers, when it says fearers of the Lord, does this refer to converts from other nations as possible? Or is it maybe a summary statement of what has gone before, those who really are fearing, are honoring the Lord? Is it an emphasis on genuine Israel, perhaps? In any case, it refers to those who have a healthy respect for God. And they give expression of reliance upon God and his power to save. But verses 12 through 15, we also see his power to enrich. This whole idea of bless or blessed, those terms appear five times in these four verses. The Lord is the one who watches over the sparrows, does he not? He watches over the poor, the small, verse 13. He watches over every group. Verse 12, the house of Israel, the house of Aaron. Verse 13, both small and great. He watches over every type of person, small, great. He watches over every generation. Verse 14, may the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. We pray for the, we can't pray for those who have died, but we pray for the generations to come those that have not yet lived. And so every group then must have God's smile upon them in order to thrive, in order to live, in order to be blessed. In verse 14, the idea of the Lord giving increase. He will always have a people to praise him on this earth. This blessing, by the way, look at verse 15, comes from the one who made heaven and earth, the one who is in the heavens, but the one who made heaven and earth. And in verses 16 through 18, then, we see the place and the time for this praise. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. So we find here, then, that first of all, God rules in the heavens, But then secondly, he gave the earth to man. For we are to subdue the earth for King Jesus. And it it is here on the earth, in space and time, in history then, that we are to offer him praise as well. As a matter of fact, verse 7 is the Lord. Nor any who go down into silence. Unlike idolaters, we shall live on to serve the living Lord. And verse 18 summarizes it in terms of present and future praise. 
praising him even in times of deep distress or whatever the circumstance, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From this time forth and going forward and forevermore, we will praise the Lord. We will bless the Lord. And the psalmist ends, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now I have seven points of application today. And the first is this, with regard to humility. Please note, therefore, the importance of humility. And as we do so, we first of all want to point to the humility of Christ. For you see, who too sang in praise to his father, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. Did he not say as he sweated great drops of blood, did he not say, my will, but thine be done? And in terms of this humility then, as we apply this to ourselves, we need to remember that there is nothing in us to commend ourselves. And therefore, in terms of humility, my friends, you must be broken for your sins. So as we come to the Lord's table then, as we contemplate this psalm which they sang at that Last Supper, we must realize the need to be broken for our own sins. You must acknowledge in that regard that you, your only hope is the Lord and his atonement, the sacrifice of Christ at the cross. That's why we say in that spirit of humility, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory because of thy mercy, because of thy truth. Secondly, we want to apply this in terms of the spirituality of worship. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 14 um, that God is a spirit, or God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in, in the same way then, that as we acknowledge that God is in heaven, and he is a pure spirit, that we are not to make idols, and we are not to worship by means of of idols. And so we therefore celebrate not only the spirituality of God, but the spirituality of, of worship. Indeed, the Lord's Supper involves the special spiritual presence of Christ. So we do not believe that the elements turn into the body and blood. That's a horrible doctrine. It's a horrible heresy taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Nor do we believe, like the Lutherans, that Jesus is physically present in, with, and under the sacraments. But we do believe that Jesus is specially present with us in the communion feast in a spiritual way. And so we are reminded of that as well as we come singing and thinking on Psalm 115. Thirdly, by way of application, Please note that the simplicity of the Lord's Supper is what we celebrate 
in contrast to the elaborate pagan rituals. The Lord's Supper involves very simple, ordinary symbols, bread and wine. In terms of baptism, if we had baptism, water, very simple. But pagan worship is elaborate. But in contrast to that, it's simple and it reflects the, this profound reality that although God has given us these symbols, they are simple so that we don't focus on the symbols, but that we focus on the one to whom those symbols point. Fourthly, please note with me that the Lord's Supper is commanded worship. It is commanded worship. It involves signs and symbols given by God's command in contrast to pagan images and idols. And it is true worship in contrast with false rituals. By the way, I, let, me, let me say, it's signs and symbols given by God's command as well as the fact that the very fact of coming to the Lord's table is part of what he commands. Now, I know sometimes providentially we are prevented from coming to the Lord's table through illness and so forth. The Lord Jesus has commanded us, this do in remembrance of me. And the Lord's Supper then is commanded worship both in its fact and also in the fact that the symbols and signs have been given by Christ's command in contrast to that which man makes up in his own imagination. It is true worship in contrast to false rituals we should not replace the Lord's Supper with something of our own choosing. We should not add to the symbolism and ritual. Fifthly, the Lord's Supper involves the promise of blessing. The blessing does come for those who receive the sacrament in faith. And this blessing, my friends, includes eternal life. Verse 18, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And as we come to the Lord's table then, we are reminded of that fact, of the blessing, including life forevermore. And someday we'll be with Jesus in heaven, praising him. Sixthly, in the Lord's Supper, we remember God. He is the one true and living God, and this is in contrast to false gods. My friends, what a horrible thing to participate in the Lord's Supper if you don't have that trust in God, which is why you need to examine yourself and make sure you're prepared to come to the supper. What a horrible thing if you are not trusting in the Lord as your help and your shield. What a horrible thing. Because when we come, we're coming to, into the very special presence of God and we remember him. And finally, notice with me the themes of creation and recreation, of creation and recreation. Now, as I already mentioned, verses 15 and 16 mention uh, creation. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven, or we might say the heavens and the earth. 
Verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Redemption has occurred, as I mentioned a moment ago, in space and time. Redemption, salvation, took place in history. And the Lord's Supper then, as we are, as we are physical beings, the Lord's Supper then uses very ordinary symbols from created reality, bread and wine. And so we have then these symbols being used in terms of the creation. But in the Lord's Supper, my friends, we are pointed beyond the creation. We are pointed to the recreation. We are pointed to the new creation. And all of that because of the new covenant. So my friends, as we come today, may it be with a sense of humility. That's the overarching theme here. That's the overarching theme. Don't come if you think you belong. If, if you think you can come in your own strength, don't come. Only come if you are trusting in the Lord, our God, the one who is in heaven, the one who does whatever he pleases, the one who is your help and your shield. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we uh, thank Thee for this psalm, and we pray that it might be a blessing to our souls, and we pray also that the supper of the Lord would be a blessing to us as well. We pray in Christ's name.